Welcome to What Makes a Garden. My name's Ginny Blom and I'm a landscape gardener and writer. I released my first book, The Thoughtful Gardener, in 2017. My second book, What Makes a Garden, will be published in October 2023. For over 20 years, I've been making gardens for a living. I've been lucky enough to work on projects all around the world, collaborating with fascinating people across the fields of design, architecture, conservation and more. While we will discuss the practical matters that go behind creating and looking after a green space, this series is about much more than that. We'll delve into what it is that inspires us to work with plants, what it is that connects us to the land, and the complex constellation of ideas, experiences, thoughts and senses that make a garden. On this episode, I'm excited to be joined by my friend Brian Eno, Brian is a musician, composer, record producer, and visual artist. One of the founding members of Roxy Music, Brian has worked with everyone from David Bowie, David Byrne, Laurie Anderson, U2, Coldplay, and Grace Jones, to name but a very, very few. His visual artworks have been exhibited around the world, including the Serpentine Gallery, the Science Museum, and the Venice Biennale. We also both support and contribute to the work of CW+, the arts charity, at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. We first met in about 2005 when I joined Brian's private a cappella choir. For a very busy man, this is something he's kept going every week almost without fail. A small and motley crew assembles and sings spontaneously improvised close harmony for a couple of hours. It's an uplifting and exhilarating experience. Brian is also Cupid, having inadvertently brought my now husband into my orbit. It's a great pleasure to sit down now with Brian. What are we going to talk about, Brian? Don't worry, we'll find yeah. something, Ginny. We always find something to talk about. We, we do. Well, I was going to talk to you um, about, I was going to bring up the topic of love, because yes. I think that's one of the things that has connected us since we met, mm-hmm. actually, which was a very long time ago, in 2005, when I started coming to sing, and I had recently split up from somebody rather anciently and horribly, and... <laughs> And uh, or weirdly, it's just weird when you split up with people that you've been with for years and years and years and years. And I came to singing and it was uh, it was just such a revelation that you were doing it every week. And it was possible to come and sing for like a couple of hours with people I didn't know. And I didn't know you and I didn't sort of need. There's a funny thing in singing, isn't there? Because we don't need to know each no, other. I was thinking. I was thinking about that actually. That I don't really know what most of the other singers do. No, the rest of the no. time when they're not singing. No, and I don't really care. Is <laughs> no, that terrible? Not me. <laughs> it's not. It's not a terrible thing. And that's what I really loved about you because I was thinking there's a generosity in being able to come and sing, which is something that's so difficult to do. Anywhere else, I've sung all my life. So mm. I was singing in quite. I'm not religious, but I I went into four separate church choirs when I was little, just to sing because mm. I could go into the church with the amazing acoustics and just sing. And and the same thing happened coming here. It was yeah. It's just rather a wonderful experience, isn't it? It's a wonderful experience, not only because you're singing, but because without realizing it, you're bonding with other people probably people you wouldn't ever meet otherwise. Yeah. I mean, if I think of the singers in this group, they they aren't really in my social circle. Yeah. 
Yeah. They don't do the same job as me. Yeah. They're people I probably wouldn't bump into otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think what is so lovely about it, apart from the pleasure of singing, is the pleasure of feeling that you can connect with somebody quite deeply and be quite vulnerable in front of them. Of course, that's singing is always slightly vulnerable experience. Yeah. You can look an idiot. But frequently do. You frequently do. And nobody <laughs> worries. No, and that's the marvellous thing because I remember some people were sort of like John, who was one of our singers, was desperately keen on performance, wasn't he? And, yes. And I remember you being equally absolutely certain that you didn't want to perform and I remember thinking thank god for that like I haven't got to go out and socialize with any of these people because I can't do it I'm the social incompetent so I can't do that and I don't want to perform because every time I'd ever tried to perform singing it had gone horribly wrong because I don't have a performance gene so Mm -hmm. it was funny to be able to just come and do the kind of Friday round the piano yes type well, I think singing of old, really. I, I sort of made a rule at the beginning, which is no recording, no performing. And I did that so that people could feel it doesn't matter if I go wrong. Mm. It's not going to be remembered. No, nobody else is going to know about it. Mm. And that that's really liberating, I think. As it happens, we have, on a couple of times, sort of performed by accident. Um, do you remember... Uh, Venetia's wedding. I remember Venetia's wedding. Yes. There was a church wedding and we sneaked in at the back of the church where nobody could see us and just started singing. Uh, What did we sing? Well, she was singing that song, The Rose, Rose. wasn't she? Yeah. She sang, it was her sister's wedding and she sang The Rose to the first, just the first verse. And we joined in halfway through the verse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I always thought that must have been amazing for the people there for the other people there yeah you, so you unexpected. couldn't see the choir they were completely hidden and then we all disappeared so nobody ever saw us <laughs> <laughs> we do we all snuck out of the back door <laughs> yeah yeah but the the point you're making about love is very important i think i was i was listening god knows why to suella braverman at the tory party conference today and i thought what that woman lacks is love yeah she doesn't have any love in her life she doesn't have love in her voice she doesn't have it in her nature and I think if people don't don't feel love they start to trade in hatred I agree and there's not much of it about and I think one of the things with the singing is the the connectivity that we have and that I've always felt with you transcends our need to hang out with each other yes you know, go. I remember one night you said, "Should we go and get something to eat?" And I, I nearly fainted with anxiety because <laughs> <laughs> I think I won't know what to do. I'd much rather no, thanks. I'd rather just stay <laughs> and see. Yeah. But that capacity for people to connect with each other in an uncomplicated but intimate way yeah. is lacking. Yeah, is lacking for everybody now because we don't do it. You don't go to the pub and sing. You don't go to church. To church. Yeah. You know. We did a, one of these podcasts with Maria Balshaw from the Tate, and mm. she was saying that after COVID, people streamed back into the turbine hall. And she said most of them, they streamed back in and they mm. were streaming. She said people were just crying with the um, the sort of need to be with each to be other. be together again, yeah. You know, and not yeah. to know each other, but to have those sort of bus stop 
conversations yes. or stand next to a painting and have some kind of companionship. And I think the, there's something missing for all of us. There's something societally missing that brings us together. Well, really. it's very interesting because social media, the idea, you know, when it first started, all the utopians were saying how wonderful it would be could everybody could come together over all distances and so on. But in fact, the algorithms of social media have made them more and more divisive. Yeah, They drive people apart, not mm. together. Mm. And singing, for example, or church, those things pull people together despite yeah. their differences. Yeah. What social media does is always amplifies differences, always makes them the only issue. Yes. You know. And it's very egocentric, isn't it? It's like my 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 stance and I mean I write about it a bit in the book because there's there's yeah. nothing to there's no glue in it, you know, where whereas what we're doing glues us yes. in a yes. very profound way. And the relationships are strong and real. And as I've said to you before, you are Cupid. Because uh, without you, Brian, I would not be a happily married woman. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> the power uh, of it, song. <laughs> it is, is one of the triumphs of the singing group. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things I think that unites you and I is our, our work ethic. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that before we were doing this. And I think you once said to me in, in a kind of glancing way, old man in a hurry. <laughs> yes. And it really stuck with me because I do. Th both of us work to a point of madness, don't we? Yeah. yeah. And people complain about it. that There's a sort of lack of humanity in it because we've, Am I right? I mean, yeah. we just focus. I'm very focused and I could focus almost exclusively on the things. It's it's driven so many of my relationships have suffered yeah. as a result of that. Same. Because that has been my primary point of focus, really. Yeah. Um, and I, there is a sort, of, a sort of selfishness in it. But also, when I look at artists... I don't see any good ones who aren't obsessed, if you know what I mean. No, it's they're, true. They're, as far as I know, there are no casually good artists. Yeah, yeah. and I remember seeing in New York at the Whitney <clears throat> when it was still in the Good Gallery um, mm -hmm. um, an exhibition of Ronnie Horn, and she's a woman, but she's... I thought, gosh, this is going to sound terrible in in this day and age but she behaves like a man yeah. because she's completely solely focused and she would go away for months and months and months she'd done that series of the back of birds heads I yes, don't know if you ever yes, saw it yes which I thought was just astonishing and and I thought oh you know there's it's it must be quite brutal to know her and then I started to have this sort of dawning <laughs> <laughs> sense of recognition because it's absolutely you know for the kind of things that you get off the ground you can only focus totally on it because yeah. you don't know where they're going. I yeah. mean, presumably. Yeah, yeah no, you? of course. I mean, you're about no. to go on tour. Yeah, I just you... sort of launch a boat and then see where it goes. Yeah. So building the boat is is the project, but the real project is then seeing where it takes you to, you know, and, yeah. and being able to go with it. Because I think you can't work without goals, but you have to be ready to abandon them. Yeah. As, you know, really ready to abandon them, not be stuck to them. You have to let them change. Yeah. I 
I that's a little bit more difficult for me when I'm moving huge thousands of tons of soil yes (laughs) vast volumes of the earth around hey hold on we should do this differently let's Let's have get my mud theremin out and put it over there it's like i call it a mud theremin because i have to move it around so much well in fact yes this project now that i'm doing working with this orchestra this is this is a little bit like digging a lake you know because there are so many people involved it's it's quite hard to suddenly say Ah, oh, don't let's do that one. Let's do something else. Um, and are they classical musicians? Do yeah. they want to be told what to do? They're, well, luckily, they're young musicians, and they're they're from Estonia, so they don't right. come with that English poker up the arse attitude that most English classical musicians do. It's obligatory, isn't it? I think it's obligatory. You have to get the poker before anything else. <laughs> you, Issued you, on be, day one. Before what they call it, grade five piano. <laughs> yes. Here's your poker. You get the poker, yeah. <laughs> and then you're allowed to go on to grade eight and possibly become a concert accompanist, <laughs> if you're Ooh, lucky. How heady. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm nasty about classical players, but I did have a few bad experiences with them. But... I went to work in Russia at one point with an orchestra and I saw such a different attitude to music. They really, it was not heritage for them. Over here, it's kind of a heritage thing. Yes. No, it's very much more alive, isn't it? It's totally alive. And it was the first time I really understood classical music as a living music. Interesting. Rather than as a historical throwback. I mean, it's partly... It's the English class system manifesting yet again in a weird way that you're just the workers, so you get paid for this. And if I'm just a worker, I'll fuck off when it's lunchtime then. Yeah. You know. It's odd, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to talk to you again about something that's shared. I think is lyrical Englishness. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of um, thread that runs through what you what I perceive of yeah. what you do and certainly some of your collaborations I was thinking I've always been fascinated by you working with Daniel Lenoir who's so completely um, <laughs> Latin <laughs> lyrical isn't yeah. he everything's yeah. kind of and then it's like you're both coming from the com- and complete I wouldn't say opposites, but definitely differences, big yes. differences, and then finding this way. And also how you work with your brother. I mean, I think so. that's got such sort of Vaughan Williamsy kind of overtones mm. to me and that sort of landscape lyricism of this country. Daniel Lenoir, clearly not from this country, mm-hmm. so my analogy is not quite right. But that sort of poetic element of music, I find that has landscape. Yeah, all the way through it. It's just l- landscape after landscape to me. Whenever I hear it, mm-hmm. I see it as you know, and then I think that's in all of us. It's in everything that we do, isn't yeah. it? Somehow, Na- I, nature I think and it's the, the land. most Im- for me. It's the most important consideration. I've I've never thought of music as storytelling, which yeah. some people do. Yeah, they treat it narratively, and in classical music, it's often sort of narrative in that. There's a progression towards a climax and then something happened, you know. It's a sort of a story. And all I ever want to do, and I think my brother is the same, and I think Dan Lanois is the same too, is is to create places, mm. to create the sense of being in 
a condition of some kind. Nothing happens except to you. Yeah. You're the only thing that's changing in a way. In yeah. the, 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 the landscape is steady. Yeah. That's where it is. Yeah. And then it, the adventure is, is your listening to it sort of thing. So it doesn't, it doesn't lead you by the hand somewhere. It says, this is a setting. What do you yes. think about it? What happens to you in this setting? Yes, it's like a weather system, or yeah, that's right, or being in a, a climatic condition, or a, you know, and it's so visual for me. I, I find yes. I find music and landscapes to be indivisible. And then I was thinking about this, and I wasn't going to talk about ecology as such because we both talk about that a lot, mm-hmm. but I am interested in how our folkloric. Um, tentacles are, are being affected currently you know yes. when things like i've just written down here a whole load of our english songs you know the oak and the ash and, and yeah. the ash grove and uh, the yew tree and all these different things and oh wally wally which is centered around an oak isn't it is it i didn't know that yeah there's that. i lean my back against some oak thinking he was a trusty tree but first he bent and then he broke and so did my false love to me so it's so sad isn't it and so we're using trusty oaks and and yeah. all these trees are kind of metaphors yes, for states yes. of being or metaphors for our relationships or our or our trust in the world around us and they're all you know, like the oaks going, there won't be any in a few years' time. Oh, don't um, things, tell me that. Things like that. So I've, I've <laughs> oh, been dear. thinking. I've been thinking about I've how we just got over the fact that chestnuts are disappearing. Horse chestnuts. <laughs> Horse chestnuts. Yeah. yeah. Sweet chestnuts are doing fine. Oh, thankfully. good. Well, that's that's a start. And the ash are coming back. I hope. But uh, you know, it's just fascinating that these things are so kind of imbued through us, and yet they're everything's shifting, yes. isn't it? And I think with it, our what does that do to our yes. profound folkloric Yes, it's like our metaphors relation. are shifting over. They're going to have to, mm-hmm. aren't they? And maybe part of what we do is part of that shift. Yes. You know, it's quite subtle. Well, I think... If there's a positive to it, which I feel there has to be, because things have always changed. Twas ever thus. Everything, twixt heaven and earth is But one of the things of I think that artists are doing is, is saying... Um, have feelings about this, whatever this happens to be. And feeling is the beginning of thinking, I think. Intellectual people think thinking is the beginning of everything, but actually I think feeling Feeling is is the beginning of everything. The first thing that happens to you, you experience as a feeling, and then you start to try to articulate those. Why do I feel suspicious about this? Why do I feel love for this? Why does this thing make me feel angry? Yeah. Um, all those feelings happen before the whys happen. Yeah. And I think um, it takes a certain humility for artists to say, actually, I live, I deal in the world of feelings. Yes. Artists think that's a bit pathetic because they want to be more serious than that. So. Yeah, no, artists, are te- well, anyone creative is, is terribly chippy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just part of it isn't it because you don't feel as you just said you don't feel like you're doing things properly yeah you know i've got no training or, or you there's know there's not enough time to do all of the ones yeah. you want to do but i think that's why this thing of having giving oneself a lot of space away from other people is so necessary because if you are going to 
truly listen to your intuition or your feelings yeah you have to have space you have to have space to hear space it. to hear it yes yeah. and I, I think for a long time in my life I didn't I thought there was something wrong with me and mm -hmm. therefore I I was a bit swamped and it took me until I was I when I said very ponderously when I was little that I would make sense when I was middle-aged <laughs> <laughs> and it and so it came to pass that I became much more able to be myself when I got older. Yeah. And you stop worrying about all sorts of perceptions and inferences and, you know, class and you just develop your own place. But that silence is really necessary to, to yeah. hear it. And that's why the work's so important, isn't it? I mean you have well, to I, I had an interesting, push it forward. An interesting revelation this year. I had heard about that 8-16 diet where you eat for eight hours a day and not solidly. for 16. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to eat solidly. Okay. Um, right. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a try because I tend to, if I'm sitting here, I tend to pick at things that I have in the kitchen there. And I thought, let's get that a little bit more under control. Anyway, so it started with that. I thought, okay, so I'm not going to start eating till midday and I'll finish by eight o'clock in the evening. So... I quickly stopped doing that, actually. But what was interesting was getting up in the morning and not having breakfast. Mm. So I thought, what shall I do instead of having breakfast? Well, I'll just sit on the floor and look out the window. I have a nice view out of my window. Um, and suddenly I noticed something, which was if you're not putting things into you, mm. be it food or mm. whatever's on your phone or whatever's on Radio mm. 4 or whatever... If you're not putting stuff into you, stuff starts coming out of you. Yeah. And this is the most fascinating discovery to me. It took me 70 odd years to realize yeah. that, oh, that congratulations. You, can't, you can't be in both input and output mode at the same time. No. If, you're, if you're pushing stuff in, whether it be food or information or whatever else, stimulus of some kind, then the stuff inside you doesn't have a chance to make itself felt it's a quieter voice actually yes and if you think that we now live in a world where the most valuable thing about us is our attention yeah that's what everybody wants yeah that's what google wants that's what facebook yeah. wants that's what every advertiser wants is your attention so there's a sophisticated machinery constantly trying to keep you occupied yes trying to distract you from what you might have otherwise thought about. Yeah. So when I realised that, I thought, this is a battle we're in. We really have to fight this by just claiming our own silence and, and you're insisting on it. You're absolutely right, because we were watching the news last night, and, you know, it's quite tempting because it's um, aggravating at the moment. Yeah. You know, whoever's side you might be on or not. Yeah. It's just sort of attention-grabbing and annoying. And we'd watched several hours of it. And then I stopped. I just said to Mark, we've got to stop now. And I said, I don't ever want to spend another block of time doing that. Yeah. Because in the back of my mind, I've been trying to do other things, you know. And yeah. I realized that I've been grabbed into this stuff and it somehow makes you feel like it's desperately important and yes. yet you're completely passive and you can't contribute anything and you're not doing anything constructive of your own yes so you're a hundred percent right and i find it i find it an infringement actually of yeah. my yeah of my liberty 
and, and actual it's a, liberty. It's a very carefully mm. constructed infringement as well. Yeah. I think culture wars is another example of that. You know, the invention of culture wars mm. is to actually stop you focusing. Yes. It's, it's deliberately to pitch, pit us against each other so that we're fighting away on the bottom here and the people who are really making the money can just fucking get on with yeah. it. Because so we're just locked in a static. Yeah, culture wars are manufactured, you know. <clears throat> That's what Tufton Street exists for. What's Tufton Street? Ah, well, it's interesting. <laughs> 55 Tufton Street is the place in London which is the centre of all of these right-wing think tanks. Many of which get their funding from, you know, Exxon and Business. Charles Koch and all those really all those shitty people that you keep hoping will die, but they don't for some reason. Um, anyway, these are heavily funded think tanks which exist to actually, I think, more and more to create culture wars, to set the public into a state of distraction where nobody. It all looks so confusing. Nobody thinks they know what's going what's going on so they're completely available to people like trump and boris johnson it's funny that you mentioned because i know nothing about that and yet when i wrote the book at the beginning of it i was thinking what am what am i writing you know i, I don't want to write another gardening book no because everybody knows what a spade is and how to dig a hole yeah. and and you can find brilliant histories of gardening by other people so I thought, what is it I'm trying to write about? And yes. I'm trying to write um, all the molecular necessities of, and urgencies of having a culture around the world, yes. really. Yes, about, Around the world we live on and in and the, the plants and the light and the atmosphere and the weather and the, you know, strands of culture and the way yeah. you and I interact and why your way of doing it and my way of doing it is so important that we share it and mm -hmm. enjoy it and don't conflict over it so in a way it's like trying to neutralize that horrible static yeah and give everybody a chance to have a think about other things you know? yeah like, yeah you know yeah. that's really empowering i think empowerment is when you give people the space to do what they wanted to do anyway yeah you and say go you welcome it go away and enjoy it you know yeah. go away and enjoy all these strands of thought and see which one's are, are exciting for you or stimulate you yes. from the mundane to the more esoteric. I wanted to talk to you about light because mm -hmm. I was writing a bit about it. I mean, I, I got so excited when I was writing it. It's probably rubbish because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, oh, and it takes you off down a, down a strand and whether I got anywhere, I don't know. But my... One of my cousins invented the light bulb, Joseph Swan. Really? Yeah. And I started thinking about Joseph Swan, and then I started thinking about you. And I, I did a little kind of synopsis thought about light and how light affects us and how with his invention, he would never have known it with the incandescent bulb and mm -hmm. his first business. <laughs> and then I was thinking it's just completely transformed the world, hasn't it? Because we're not even now... Um, tied to our circadian rhythms That's we're completely right. yeah. adrift from those and the sky at night and the sun and the moon and all the rest of it and i was very interested to hear why you're so attracted to working with light my interest in light really came i think from a single incident that i can remember when i was very young my uncle 
hired a little eight millimeter projector. Yeah. Um, Super eight. Super eight. Yeah. Yeah. And we went round to his house to watch a Donald a Disney film. But he'd set the projector up about ten inches from the wall, <laughs> so it was a small <laughs> picture, but it was incredibly bright, and the saturation of these colours I had never seen anything How like amazing. it before. Yeah. Um, and I dreamed about it for years afterwards. Um, and nothing in the cinema ever looked as bright as that because it didn't have that saturation. Did you have to lean in really close yeah, to it Yeah, yeah, we were all yeah. clustered around looking at this tiny little picture on the wall. Um, and so... Well, nobody'd stared at little screens before, had they? No. They didn't know what to do. There wasn't television then. No. So, Or at least not, not that any of us had seen. Um, so... As soon as I went to art school, one of the things I wanted to do was to try to make things with light. Yeah. Um, and I did. I started making my first light piece was 1965, I think, so a long time ago. Um, and I was 17. And it, it was quite a simple piece because the technology of light was very, very clumsy. But that gave me a feeling that, it sort of healed a rift in me because I'd, mm. I'd always loved music mm. and I'd always done painting. I couldn't play any instruments. But I always thought that somehow I wanted to do something that was both of those things mm. at once. And light became that because light was, like music, was enveloping. It was immersive. And like music could change slowly. Mm. So all of my light pieces... In, involved change of colour, yeah. really. Um, and some of the early pieces were were very simple, but I still think of them fondly. I, I built a little room at the Stedelijk in Amsterdam, which just had televisions <laughs> on each side and sheets of opal perspex over them. Right. And I just had tapes playing that went th- very slowly through colour, through a spectrum. So you'd be in this little room and it would be bright, bright, bright orange. Yeah. And then gradually it'd go blood red and then to purple. Yeah. Then to blue. and But at, at a speed too slow for you to register at any moment that there's change going on. It's the strongest experience you can imagine yeah. to be in a room in such an intense color and then to think hold on, wasn't this blue before? It feels mm. green now. Um, How long would people stay in it? Oh, ages. Ages, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very... interesting, isn't it? Well, one of the interesting things about making slow artworks is that it slows people down. Yeah. You know, when people are inside of one of those things, their rate of expectation yeah. goes down. They're not expecting, yeah. you know, instant... Well, that's clip, why it's clip, so clip. good you did it for... Chelsea and Westminster because oh yes because we've both done stuff for their yes, art program true. haven't we and um, that thing of your ce- you put them in the ceiling didn't you in yes the, in the traction in the broken bone department yes so people who were laying on their back for a month had something nice and you've got those at. very slowly <laughs> moving lightscapes above them that are completely entrancing aren't they you just yeah. sort of go into them. Yeah, and they were and saying they were saying that the light piece is there. Um, did they tell you the thing about the burnt children that they 
didn't used to be able to change their bandages because the stress levels of of the parents and the stress levels of the kids so the kids would amplify the anxiety of the parents and the whole thing would escalate yes and it would take umpteen nurses hours and hours and hours to change their dressings until they put the light works oh gosh i didn't know and then they could do the whole thing in under 20 minutes yeah because everybody just got sucked into the the changing and calmed down a bit and just completely calmed down so i mean there's a I find it really interesting that there are these very measurable responses to things that we do to ourselves, yeah. you know, for positive or negative. We never seem to focus on that well, and, very much and with, also art, you'd, with art, the power of art, really. No, I mean, artists are the worst people to focus on the power of art. They just don't <laughs> get it at all. I, I think one of the most depressing little surveys I ever did was I asked 20 scientists what they thought they were doing you know what do you do what why do you do it and they came up with pretty coherent answers oh i'm really interested in nematodes and i want to see what happens if you divide their dna and this blah 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 each person could describe a project which was essentially i am finding out about a part of the world yeah i asked 20 artists what do you think you're doing and four of them said it's none of your business (laughs) And the others came up with outlandish, often quite outlandish answers that yeah. were obviously the result of reading too much bad French philosophy. Uh-huh. Uh, and what are you doing? <laughs> well, that's, I'll talk about that later. But, okay. Um, but, but I thought it's interesting that I think one of the reasons that art is so easily attacked by people like Rishi Sunak and, you know, the the people who think that art isn't an important part of the curriculum. It's not as important as maths. Not level. as important as maths and English. Is, is because artists don't actually explain themselves very yeah. well. They don't take themselves seriously, actually. Yeah. Um, and I, I really wish we would be a little bit more articulate and point to how art works and how it changes us. But anyway, so you, you asked me what I think it does. I don't know if you actually want an answer to that question. Yeah, no, I do, actually. It would take quite a long time. <laughs> Go on. Um, so I think the simplest way I can explain it is we, we all understand how play works for children. When we see children playing, we know that they're not wasting their time. They're learning something. You know, children either are inventing things, like inventing scenarios that they play out with each other, or imagining you know, what if this soldier came in there and that one met him over mm-hmm. there and this one had a bazooka and that one had a... Imagining. So children are kind of building imaginary constructions and kids do it with dolls and they do it with uh, social games and they're learning about all sorts of things, like if they're bashing a glass on the ground to see how, how soon it will smash, they're learning about yeah. materials. Yeah. Um, so all of that playing you can sort of see in it either the roots of art, I want to imagine another world and see what it feels like, or the roots of science, I want to see how this world works. Yes. What makes this thing break? What makes it hold together? So we completely understand that in children and we think, oh, that's wonderful, isn't it lovely? And then we try to educate them where we actually stop them making those kinds of experiments. Bash it all out of them. Bash it all out of them. And... I think 
well, the, the summary is children learn through play and art is play for adults. It's, it's the, the way that adults play. And using play in its most profound sense of exploring possibilities in an imaginary yes. space. Um, and to me, that's, that's actually the most important thing that humans do. You know, the success of human beings is their ability to project their minds into a future that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. To say, imagine if we had a society like this or a house like this or a meal like this or an earring like this. You know? yes. um, so we make things in our mind before we make them in reality. Yeah, well, you have to let worlds carry on colliding, really. Yes. And expose yourself to the instability of, of discovering new things and yes. not getting your thoughts stuck in a rut, you know, and it's, it's terribly hard as an adult. I and mean, yeah. my dad was an inventor, and so he played all the time. Yeah. And I remember my mother just saying, you know, he would have made a very good uncle, she said, <laughs> which I thought was really damning. <laughs> Damned by faint praise. Yeah. <laughs> but I was always really impressed by the fact that he was constantly um, quite like Mark, yeah. who you introduced me to, who's constantly playing. I mean, he's he just can't string thoughts together in a in a linear way or in a you know there's just nothing it doesn't work like that yeah you know in his makeup or in yours mm. i would say mm. and possibly in mine but i have to build quite sensible things but <laughs> it's very stimulating to be around people who who physiologically can't adhere to the way the norms really yes that you know. that reminds me of an idea i was having the other day i was thinking it's it's interesting that we've been very careful in the last 15 or 20 years to include people of other ethnicities, of other backgrounds, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and it's wonderful. I'm very glad we do that. But why haven't we done that with neuroatypical people as well? Yeah. Why doesn't every board of every company have someone who's yeah. neuroatypical yeah. to... to take advantage of the value of somebody who sees the world in a different yeah. way you know it's funny we we I'm now very... realize that we should have women on boards yeah. because they they do Think something different yeah <laughs> but we don't we still don't do it with neuroatypical it'll be interesting <laughs> I, I think in the future we'll we'll struggle to find anyone de we describe as neurotypical because we'll start to realize that each brain is actually odd in some yeah. way or another and they should be and they should be and we should yeah. we should celebrate them and yeah. try to find what we can do with them again this is it's all it's a question of attention it's a question of valuing your attention mm. and we've just lost the habit of valuing it we, yeah. we just let it be hostage to anyone who wants to take it you know they dangle a new pair of trainers in front of us or a yeah. holiday in Spain and that's our attention gone. Yeah. I mean I was wondering if anyone's gonna read a book with fifty thousand words in it. I wonder about that. Yeah. I you know I've I keep saying to writers now, just write shorter books. Yeah. <laughs> attention spans are so poor. Yeah. Um but also I th you know, I've just got my friend Yanis Varoufakis has just published a new book called Techno Feudalism. I think it's a really, really important book. Oh good. But I, I want to say to him, Yanis, now write the 10,000-word version of yeah. this book. 
because even though he's a kind of superstar writer, yeah. economist, how many people will get through that book? He needs to do a pop-up book. Yeah, he's, yeah. I think Honestly. every I think everybody, it, and you, I include you in this. Everybody who writes a book should also publish the synopsis of it. Yeah, the small yeah. version, and I think it would be good for their sales actually, yeah. because I think if you re, if you're excited by the ten thousand word version, you think. That's really great. You want one like a Mr. Men book, don't you, with hard pages and not much yeah, that's information right. on it. <laughs> that's right, big typeface. Yeah. <laughs> and little illustrations. Why don't we talk about architects? Yeah, we should talk about architects. <laughs> we can talk about the possibly the most lost profession in the sense of it. it's... It seems to have so little to do with the reason that people originally made buildings. Well, you know, landscape architecture came before it. And if you look, as I have done, on our on the, the Bible of Common Knowledge, Wikipedia, yeah. um, and you look at the description for architect architecture, it's a matter of a few lines. And uh -huh. then you look at landscape architecture, and it's very big because right. it, it covers so many different things um and in, in the old days we were complicit with one another because we would be citing the buildings yes and now the buildings are sort of these objects they're these deracinated objects yes, yes. in space architecture at the moment seems to think completely from the outside what does this thing look like on my computer screen or yeah. in a street what will the photos of it look like? Yeah. So if you if you see an architect's model, it's Can I render about it? the look of it. Yeah. It's about the look. It's not about the function. And, of course, I know there are exceptions to this. There are architects who think about that. But I'm always talking about this guy, Christopher Alexander. Yes. Um, who architects sort of regard as a stupid old fuddy-duddy or something like that. Yeah. He, he doesn't have great respect in the architecture profession. And I think that's because he keeps worrying about how it will be for the people inside. Inside it, It's yeah. considered like a, why would you think about that? It's a bit like if you're a composer and you say, well, I would like the, the audience to enjoy it. And other composers say, ha, oh, populist stuff then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really funny. I, you know, I've worked in um, Kenya for a bit a few years ago and I used to take this flight from Nairobi up into the Rift Valley in uh -huh. a little Cessna. And this really strange thing happens as you fly over. And actually, I, I really want to show you the slides. I've been meaning to show you for ages. Because you fly from Nairobi, which is fairly horrible. And as you fly out, you, fly, you start to see these little, the original kind of houses of Africa, which are yeah. these little rondavelles with a sort of spiky fence around them and the relationship to, of the dwelling to the landscape changes completely so in Nairobi they're basically a breeze block and cement version yeah. of the same thing they're still fortified and then the land between them which is getting less substantial the closer to the middle of town yes, you go yes. is just like a sort of filthy no man's land full of crap as it is in every city. Yeah. I'm not singling Nairobi out because it's exactly the same in Nice or in yeah. Toulon or yeah. any other place that we think is really valuable and marvellous, you know. 
But then as you go further out and further out into the countryside, these houses become these beautiful little fortifications, the true expression of what a human needs to live in. And then the rest of the land is the world around us. And I, I've just, I can't conclude the thought properly, but we need so little yeah. for the houses that we live in yeah. and for what we actually need to sustain us and what our footprint on the earth. You know, nobody, until the Brits turned up and the Danes or whoever um, turned up in Kenya, nobody built anything. Yeah. There was no need. It's the cradle of civilization and nobody built anything. Yeah. So I think there's a sort of civilization question around architecture. Well, there and is. And this dominance um, on the earth and this absolute massacre, massacring of the, of the earth that goes with it, which I'm frequently cleaning up, actually. But large this, part this of my to job. do with um, the, the last phase of human evolution has been the consumer era, mm. where the the thing that you were most valuable for was your ability to consume. Mm. You know, as a consumer, what people wanted was your attention and your money. And that's what all advertising about is how do we how do we get that out of her? How do we get her attention and how do we then cater to that the the needs that we've invented for her to have? And everybody's realizing that that didn't work. It didn't work economically. You know, we've We've now got a broken economics. But it didn't work um, spiritually either. We've got people who don't know what they are there for or what they want yeah. um, or what their use is, really. Yeah. And so I think we're all ready to transition into the next phase, which is the, you might say, the citizen phase, where we we don't have so much personally. We don't need to have a whole fucking empire of white goods around us. What? <laughs> The, what the heresy empire. is this? <laughs> and, and instead we we learn to share a lot more things and yeah. we realise that sharing is what we like doing. Yeah. Giving is actually what we prefer to do than getting. We Giving is more fun than getting. Um, parents and children realise that. Families realise that. But uh, society has been persuaded that that's not true any longer. Um, I know. I've, I'm only recently coming to the realization of how damaging things were in the 80s because I was on yes. a, I was on a different side of it you know I was working with homeless people and yes. didn't have anything yeah. <laughs> um so I was sort of di dislocated from the the kind of um whiz kiddie world when where everyone was getting very rich and yeah. having loads of stuff um yeah so it sort of slightly passed me by but I now see the damage of it, really, yeah. and the fact that it's crashing and burning and people have lost their sense of what matters. I think that's another reason for writing about cultural matters, you yes. know, or things that actually go beyond the material, you know, and go into something a bit more nourishing and sustaining. Well, we did let architects off lightly yes and um next time Ginny, we're going to take the architecture profession apart shall we i think we should brian okay. because i have a lot to say about it and i know you do and so do i yeah and i think we might find something really interesting in it all good yeah well i'll look forward to the next time we meet and thank you so much for having a chat it's been lovely <laughs> thank you Ginny. i've really enjoyed it <laughs>
thank you for joining me on this episode of What Makes a Garden. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it, leave a review and share with your friends. To find out more, you can head to my website, ginnyblom.com or find me on Instagram at ginny.blom. The book, What Makes a Garden, will be published by Quarto and available to buy online from all good bookshops from the 19th of October 2023. This podcast was produced by Danielle Radoichin at In Talks With, sound by Warren Borg at Wargi Productions, original music commissioned by Ginny Blom, composed by Peter John Vitesse and produced by Mark Fox at Re-Record.